Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for the Bluff Church. If you live in the Poplar Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Good morning, and happy birthday, Bluff, right? Yeah, that's awesome. As well as congratulations, all you grandparents, because today is also Grandparents Day, okay? That's awesome. All right, yes, let's applaud that, yeah. That's a reward in life to get to be a grandparent, okay? So, (laughs) heard some negative comments right there we're just going to ignore. Okay, so for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mason Powell. I am the teaching co-pastor here, and if you are a guest here this morning, we are thrilled and honored that you are here and that you've decided this morning to be a part of the bluff and what's going on here. And we do this thing where every single Sunday we take a moment and we recognize one particular area of service here at the church, and we give them a round of applause and appreciation. And this morning, we want to give a round of applause and appreciation to our host team. So let's, let's give them a round of applause for what they do. They do more than just open up doors and hand out brochures and pass around the buckets for offering. They are a key element of creating the atmosphere of feeling welcomed and that anyone can belong here. And so it's a a very important job. And they had the great idea this morning to do the name tags, which I know many of you are probably thinking, this is a great thing because I don't know the person's name on the opposite ends of the room. And now you have a chance to learn their names. But also, and let's just be honest, we're human beings, right? There are people in your life that you you talk to all the time. You always have small talk, and you're always wondering, I can't remember their name, and, and I talk to them every single Sunday for years now, and I can't ask them what their name is, and you're, you're always hoping that somehow they're going to say their own name in the conversation, okay? This, don't worry, the host team has got your back this morning if this is you, okay? So if there are people in the room, you're like, I can't remember their name, you could thank the host team afterwards when you go and purposely shake their hands to learn their name again, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just human nature. Well, I want to start off this morning with, with sharing a little story. So me and my wife, we don't have any kids, but what we do have is a rambunctious dog named Ben. I think we actually have a photo of Ben. Oh, yeah. Isn't he adorable, right? Like, I'll be honest, 
I didn't want a dog until I laid eyes on Bandit, and then after that point, I was trying to talk my wife into, hey, we're, we're going home with this dog. I mean, how can you say no to a face like that, <laughs> all right? So when me and my wife, we got him, we, we got him at a rescue shelter for the hefty price of $25, all right? Now, I love Bandit, and, and you know, he's a great dog. I'll be honest, he loves me more than Jody. Um, <laughs> My wife doesn't like to admit that, and if you ask her, she might grudgingly admit, you know, with some complaining that, yes, the dog, he loves her, but I'm one notch above, okay? Like, when I come in, he gets really excited. Well, when we first got Bandit, he was, like I said, he was an impulse buy, okay? So we didn't have anything for him. We didn't have a crate, and so we're trying to test out how much can we trust this dog. So we kept him in the bathroom, and then we eventually upgraded to the bedroom, and then we eventually just let him out all around the apartment, and he never made any mess. It, it was like there was no disasters. It seemed like we have this really well-trained dog, and we were naive enough to believe that. <laughs> because week two comes around, okay, and, and during that week, I was teaching at a local church's vacation Bible school in the evenings, and and when we were gone, we, even though we're just gone for a few hours, we decided let's just leave Ben down the whole apartment. Well, about halfway through the week, I left my Bible accidentally at home, and so I'm at the church, and I used someone else's Bible to teach from. And, and when I get back, we walked in on a horror scene that Bandit had left for us. Because normally when we open the door, he comes running right up to the door, and he's all excited. He's dancing around. But this time when we opened the door, he was just sitting in the middle of the living room, just smiling. <laughs> and I'm like... He's, he's sitting on something. And as I move him, I realize what he's sitting on is the shredded remains of my Bible. <laughs> mm. The Word of God had been chewed on and ripped up into tiny pieces all across the apartment. They put a whole new meaning on being hungry for God's Word for me. <laughs> and it wasn't just that. He also ate a devotional book I was reading, and he destroyed the remote to the TV. Now, I won't mention which one of those three I was most upset about. <laughs> okay? <laughs> But I was devastated. I was sitting there thinking, the dog who cost us only $25 had destroyed more than $25 worth of stuff in our house in the second week of having him. Now, I know what you must be thinking. The dog has lost his value, and we must have gotten rid of him. No. Was he guilty of what he did? Yes, of course. Was I mad? Yes. But did I still feed him and walk him and play with him the rest of the evening? Begrudgingly, yes. <laughs> but I still did it. Okay, let's take this silly little illustration and let's, let's change some characters here in the story. Because let's dare to ask ourselves the, the scary question of, is the same true between us and God? Like, is there a point where we've just done too many really bad things, we've destroyed too many things, that God is just angry at us, God says, you have lost your worth and value, I don't want you, you've just exhausted my love and grace. Now, that might sound like a silly little question because we're all the time saying Jesus loves and Jesus saves, but, but do we really believe that? I mean, do we really believe that about ourselves, that we're part of that category? That even though we've messed up, that, that God might still love us? Or is it just easier to think God is tired of me? God is upset with me? And this is a real dilemma in our world because if you ask people, hey, what do you think God thinks of you? Either they're going to think God doesn't even know my name, he has no interest in me, or they're going to say God is disappointed in me, God is angry at me because of this list of things over here that I know I've done that give me ample reason to believe that, that God is upset with me 
and God hates me. But is it true? This is what we hope to wrestle with this morning. And we're going to be diving into John chapter 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn there. Because we're going to be looking at Jesus dealing with this worldview mentality that you can become expendable to God. That there's a point where you've just done too many awful things and God's grace has reached his limit. And he's sitting there thinking, I'm tired of always coming in and fixing your problems. And this is what Jesus is wrestling with, this worldview and this mentality in his day and age. Now, as you turn there, let me go ahead and say once again, if you're a guest, first off, we are glad you're here. I would love to meet you in person after the service and hear your story. Or you can meet one of our host team at the Hub, and they're going to have a gift for you for coming in this morning. But secondly, I want you to know, as well as anyone who hasn't been here in a number of weeks, that we are working our way through the Gospel of John, not merely seeing how Jesus is God, which is the typical way that everyone reads the Gospel of John, but we're looking at what does God do when he steps into some really dark and uncomfortable places in our human existence? And what sort of changes does he make? What, what sort of impact does he make in these, these dark areas? Which brings us now to John chapter 8 this morning. And now we're just going to be looking at the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. Now, for those of you who have a Bible, I need to mention something real fast, a little textual comment. Some of you might have a little note at the top of your Bible that says, like, hey, the oldest manuscript copies that we have of the Gospel of John that we found do not include this story. And that's true. See, there's a lot of debate of, did John actually write this story, or did someone, like, when they're copying the, the book of John around, decide, hey, let's add this story in? And so there's a lot of controversy over this, but but the truth is that we can still trust this story was something that God put in place for us. And it's a very likely story that happened in Jesus' life based on who he is, the situations going on in that day and age, and a number of other factors of how, for instance, their culture remembered things a whole lot better than us. They were an oral society where people told stories and you just remember them. So this is a highly likely, highly probable story of the life of Jesus that someone, you know, after John had written the book, was decided, hey, why don't we add this story in? So we're going to treat this like we can actually trust this, that this is actually God's word as we finally get into our text. Now, our text actually begins with the very last verse of chapter 7, which is serving to set the scene for us of what our story takes place. So starting at verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So our story begins with a typical experience for Jesus whenever he's in Jerusalem. Okay, He spends his evenings in the garden outside of the town, and then as the, soon as dawn comes and the sun's up, he rides back into town, he goes in the temple, and he starts to teach people about God. Because, I mean, the temple is where people come to meet with God, right? Where they come to hear about how God loves them and how God has this big plan for humanity involving them. And so Jesus is here in this location, he's teaching, and there's a crowd that are starting to gather around Jesus to hear him, but but things take a sharp turn because all of a sudden, even though this crowd is listening, there's this other group that starts to come in from the distance. And they're, they're pushing and shoving people around. And it's seen that they're dragging something. And as they get closer, it's seen that they're, in fact, dragging someone. And here's what happens. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So stop right there and think about this. Here's Jesus. He's in the temple, 
and he's teaching about the love of God and God's glory and what God is doing in the world through Jesus. And ask yourselves, where are all the other teachers? Where are all these other people who go around teaching the word of God? They're absent from this place where they should be, but they're not here. And then all of a sudden, they arrive together as one united front, and they're dragging a woman, kicking and screaming through town, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And the text says this woman was not just found guilty, she was caught guilty of having an affair. Which means it's not that someone saw her text messages or her Snapchat feed or her her social media posts and put two to two together and realized she's having an affair, nor that she spilled the beans or someone else spilled the beans saying, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? No, this is a woman that they walked in on while she's having the affair. And they grabbed her and they have dragged her naked, screaming, kicking through the town so everyone can see. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus in this shocking moment. And here's what happens. They looked at Jesus and as everyone's gasping and they say in verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses has commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? These religious leaders, they, they have brought this woman and exposing all of her shame as she's thrown naked at the feet of Jesus. And they're using it to try to, to trap Jesus because they have their laws. They have their rules that says, this is what we do when this happens. But instead of doing that, they think this is a perfect opportunity. Let's bring her before Jesus. Now, why in the world would they think that? And what are they hoping to gain by throwing Jesus into this ugly matter? Well, the next verse answers it for us. The first half of verse 6 says, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, they are trying to trap Jesus. The woman was guilty. That was indisputable. She was caught in the act. And she is dragged here. And their law says that the witnesses to the crime would take large stones and they would crush her to death with them. And so she is just brought before Jesus and it's, it, they're putting Jesus as the judge and executioner. And she's having to look at Jesus knowing life and death hangs in the balance. But this is a trap. Because on one side, if Jesus was to devote for mercy upon this woman, when they just said the word of God says to do this, if they were to, if he was to say, no, 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 we're not going to kill her, he could be called a heretic. They would trap him saying, you're, you're going against God's word, and then it would be his neck on the line. But if he was to vote on the other side and says, yes, this angry crowd is right, we should kill this woman, then two things happen. One, he loses his reputation for compassion for the victimized, for the marginalized, for the outcasts. He would lose all reputation of compassion and love upon that group of people. But more importantly, he'd be in trouble again of death. And the reason being is because the Roman emperor The Roman governing power were the only ones who had the power of capital punishment. The Jews were living under this this status of being slaves to Rome, which means they're not allowed to practice capital punishment. Now, they still do all the time, but they're technically not allowed to. So if Jesus was to say, hey, I know this woman, she does need to be killed, someone's going to run off and say, hey, Jesus is being a rebel. He's saying that he has more power than the Roman governor. 
in town, which means it would be his life forfeit again. So they're, they're thinking, we've got Jesus. They're, they're probably wringing their hands saying, yes, we got him, because if he votes in favor of the woman, then he looks like a heretic, and they would have cause to kill him. But if he votes in favor of the crowd saying, yes, you're right, this woman needs to be killed, then he's marked as a rebel against Rome, and he's killed in that way as well. So this would appear to be a lose-lose situation for Jesus. And his enemies are probably thinking, we've got him now. So what does Jesus do? I love this response. Picking back up in verse 6, in the last half, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. <laughs> I love that. He doesn't speak. He's, he's not going to get trapped by them. But instead, he decides to, to get on the ground and start drawing. And, and what's beautiful is that he's on eye level with this woman. And he just starts drawing in the sand so that she could see him and he could see her. Now, we don't know what was drawing in the sand. Scholars will like to make up crazy arguments all the time. It was this or that. And one of the most popular ones is that Jesus is kind of writing out everyone else's sins in the area saying, oh, oh, you over there, yeah, you've done this. And oh, you over there, yeah, here are all your things. We don't know. If that's what happened, the text would have said that. He might have been drawing spaceships for all we know. We don't know, okay? But what's important is that while everyone else is standing above this woman and screaming curses and saying, she's a monster, she should be punished, Jesus is getting on her eye level to be the only one in the crowd to look at her as if she's a human being. And as they continue to pester him, trying to, get to, tra to trap him to get him killed, he finally stands up and this is what happens. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. So these teachers of God, they wanted to kill her. So Jesus flips the dilemma back on them to expose them, saying, hey, if you want to be the one to kill her, then you have to admit that you're perfect. You see, what he's doing is he's actually throwing a trap back in their faces, a, a, an issue that they have to deal with, because the truth is they are not innocent in this matter. And allow me to explain. Let's ask the question, where's the man in the situation? Because only the woman has been brought before Jesus caught in an affair. It's not that only women were the ones stoned when they're caught in an affair. The men are too. The man's not here. And you take that evidence and you add it with the fact that the teachers have all been absent as Jesus is teaching in the temple where they should have been. And then they all arrive together, dragging this woman that they just happened to stumble upon. You add this evidence up and it's not a coincidence. This is a situation that they manipulated. They targeted this woman. They waited for her. They set the scene. They, they trapped her. And then when the trap was sprung, they then grabbed her and brought her to Jesus to get him killed. Her life was expendable, nothing more than collateral damage if it meant they could kill Jesus. And Jesus knew it, which is why he, he poses this question. And so here's what happens. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So one by one, these accusers, these haters, these manipulators, these vile men start to leave one by one as they're put face to face with their own guilt, realizing what they've done and what they've become as they've tried to take an innocent woman and use her to kill Jesus. And so they start to leave with that shame and guilt on their shoulders until it's just Jesus and this woman left. And so what happens is verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And she said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Once again, we see Jesus treating a female with intense amount of respect and honor and admiration, even as she lies naked before him in her shame. Can you imagine the tears that are going down her eyes? There's no doubt she's heard of Jesus, heard of some of his teachings, or heard of some of his miracles, but I doubt she ever thought a man like that would speak to her would even look at her. And in this moment, he has defended her at the risk of his own reputation. He has saved her at the risk of his own life. And he has forgiven her at the risk of being judged by everyone else. And all he says is, don't be the person you were before. Because she has a new opportunity, not to be known as the woman who was caught in adultery, not to be known as the woman who was manipulated by the teachers who should have been treating her like Jesus is treating her. She no longer has to be known by that reputation. No, now she gets to be known by a new reputation where she gets to live a new life founded on the grace of Jesus and what he has done for her. Meaning her past doesn't matter anymore because she has a future in Jesus. Would it not be great if this was true, not just for this woman, but for you as well? For you who might feel like God hates you, God is disappointed in you, who you look at your life and you think everything's in pieces because of what I've done, and you're hoping and praying someone would show you mercy, someone would show you love and grace and forgiveness, would it not be great to know that this is true? And if that's you, I, I want you to know this very important detail that I want you to walk away remembering. You will never outwrong the grace of Jesus. Let me say that again. You will never out wrong the grace of Jesus. This might be difficult to accept because you might have a list of reasons to tell you that this is a lie. And you might be thinking, I have too many things in my life, this long list, there's no way that God could possibly love me because I know where I've been, I know what I've done, I know what things I've said and, and the hurt I've caused. And you might be thinking, I deserve punishment. I deserve to be hated. But that's not what Jesus does. Because that's not what he did to this 
this woman who was caught in this this shameful exposure of horrible sin. And he still looks at her and says, I love you. I don't condemn you. Now, does that make what she, she did right? No. She's still guilty. She still made a mistake that she should never have done. But here's the beautiful thing. She has not outrunned the grace of Jesus. Does she deserve punishment? Yes, she did, but it doesn't have to be so. Because Jesus intervened. Because he says there's no outronging his grace for beings who are are willing to ask for some grace and some mercy and for some forgiveness. So whatever you think about, hey, this is my little box of stuff that I go to time and time again that tells me that I am unlovable, that there's no way that God could possibly forgive me, and it might be for, for something you did last night, or it might be for something you just did on the morning on the way here. That makes you feel guilty. That makes you feel ashamed to be here. That makes you think that everyone out there is against you. And you might have some horrible situations. You might have a situation where maybe your family won't take your calls and your friends have all left you. And you think, I am unlovable because someone has made you feel that way or because you convince yourself. But that doesn't mean it's true. Because you'll never out wrong the grace Jesus. And so, yes, what this woman did was wrong. But Jesus chose not to condemn her, instead chose to give her grace. And there's this beautiful thing that when we receive grace, it starts to change us so that we're not just grace receivers, we start to be grace givers. Because we recognize that we were just like this woman. And so how wrong it would be for us to then become these teachers, these leaders, and try to drag other people down and say, look at them. We should judge them. We should should be praying for fire to be coming down on them. No. Grace receivers become grace givers. So let's play with that idea, okay? Let's take this scenario of this woman caught in her sin, and let's change out some of the characters and ask ourselves, how do we respond in grace to them? So what about your husband? What about your wife, your parent, or your sibling who did something wrong and evil to you? Should we point our fingers at them and hate them and say they cannot be among us because of what they've done? No. We don't do that. Does this make what they did right? No. Because it was never what God wanted. But Jesus still gives love and grace and forgiveness to us when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? What about your ex-husband or your ex-wife or the couple going through divorce or the couple who has gone through divorce? Should we point our fingers at them and hate them and say they are not welcome among us? No, we don't. Does that make what horrible things have been done right? No. Because it was never what God wanted. But Jesus still gives us love and grace and forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? 
What about that person who stole from you and lied to you? Should we point our fingers at them and hate them and say they're not welcome among us? No, we don't. Does that make what they've said and done right? No, because it was never what God wanted. But Jesus still gives us love and grace and mercy when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? What about that person who hurt your career? Or what about that family member who treated you with selfishness? Or what about that classmate who took all the glory for the work that you've done? Should we point our fingers at them and hate them and say, they're not welcome among us here? No, we don't. Does that make what they did right? No, because it was never what God wanted. But Jesus still gives us love and grace and mercy when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? What about the couple who are sleeping together? And they're not married. What if they're cheating on their spouses? What if they move in together? What if they have a child out of wedlock? Do we point our fingers at them and hate them and say that they're not welcome among us? No, we don't. Does that make what they're doing right? No, because it was never what God originally wanted. But Jesus still gives us love and grace and mercy and we don't deserve it, why don't you try to do the same thing? What about the woman who went and got an abortion? Should we point our fingers at her and, and say, you're not welcome among us and hate them and say that, yeah, and judge them? No, we don't. Does this make what they did right to another human being? No. Because it was never what God wanted. And oftentimes, that decision comes out of a place of fear and panic and confusion rather than the hate we so rush to assume. But you know what's great? Jesus still loves, still gives grace and forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? What about the LGBTQ community? Should we point our fingers at them and hate them and say that they're not welcome among us? No, we don't. Does this make what they do right in the eyes of God's word? No, because it was never what God originally intended and designed. But Jesus still gives us love and grace and forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Why don't you try to do the same thing? Believe it or not, there are a lot of members of the LGBTQ community I know by name who watch these messages week after week online. And that overjoys me because it shows us that this is a place that is a shame-free zone for those who are wanting to know that Jesus loves them that Jesus hasn't shamed them or alienated or marginalized. And so it overjoys me that there's people in that category who listen, just as it overjoys me that there are people here who have come from broken homes, divorces, scandals of defeats, and past mistakes that make shame upon their life. They can still know that the bluff is a place where it's a shame-free zone where we want to love others because God has loved us. 
Because if we dare to believe that God loves the whole world, then we have to be willing to admit that that whole world is not always going to look like us. It's not always going to have the same skin tone as us. It's not always going to have the same political party as us or dress like us or talk like us or go to the same churches as us even when they might have used to gone here. And yet we still admit Jesus loves the whole world, including us. Now, let me be clear about two things. First off, I am not saying that if you are in a a scary, harmful, hurtful situation where you or those you love are being victimized, that you should just forgive that person or that individual and go back to them and put yourself and others in that harmful position. That is not what I'm saying. And if you are in that position, then maybe we should have a talk about what we could possibly do to help encourage you and help protect you. So that's not what I'm saying, that you need to go back to a place where you are being harmed and hurt by others and just forgive them. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that giving love and grace and forgiveness is easy just because Jesus did it. It's not. It is incredibly uncomfortable. It is not in our nature. But if we dare to say that we love Jesus and that we're following him, And maybe it's time we start to change that about our natures so that we do our best to look more and more like Jesus because we believe Jesus loved the whole world after all, right? That's what we want to be about here at the Bluff. We want to be a place that is all about the never-ending amount of grace that God has for us. That is all about, hey, we love God and we love people like Jesus loved us. And so we want this to be a shame-free zone, a place where everyone is welcome regardless of what past you have. Because we don't care about your past. We care about what future there is for you in Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. And that's what we want to be about here at the Bluff. It's all about Jesus. And he's the one who tells us you can never outrun his grace. That's what we get to celebrate every time when we gather together as a body of believers. Which is why this morning, if you might have noticed, we're going to be celebrating communion here in a little bit. This and baptism are our two most crucial ceremonies as believers. Baptism is where we are announcing publicly to the world, saying, this was my life before, but now I'm starting over. I'm starting in a new direction, one where Jesus is involved in it. So baptism is a wonderful celebration of the work that God has done to change our lives and to start us down a new direction. But communion is incredibly special because communion is where we get to celebrate the God who who hung on a cross and allowed his body to be broken, his blood be poured out so that he could pour out grace upon us so that every excuse we might come up with saying, God, there's no way you can possibly love me for this past mistake I've done. His cross is the answer to show us that is not true, that his grace is insurmountable. and It's so much better. And so we get to celebrate with that this morning. And so let me give you quick instructions on how that's going to go. In just a second, I'm going to pray. Stephanie and the band is going to come up, and we're going to, we're going to sing. We're going to worship God. And during that time, if you feel compelled, which I encourage you know, a good majority of you to hopefully feel compelled, when you are ready, come up and, and grab a piece of bread, dip in some juice, and eat it. Now, don't rush to come up here. Instead, I want you to take a few seconds. Think about what are the, the excuses you come up with that make you think that, that God is disappointed in you, God despises you, that God hates you, or anything like that. And I want you to think about the fact that Jesus says you'll never be able to outrun his grace. 
and those little dark dungeons that you run to in your mind, you take a moment to invite Jesus into them. And then when you're ready, after you've had moments to wrestle with that, then come up and get in line and, and take part in communion. And then you can either take it right there or you can return to your seat, whatever makes you feel comfortable. Okay. Now, I recognize there might be some visitors here in this room or, or even people who say, I don't follow Jesus and I'm not quite sure what this is. There is no pressure for you to be a part of this if you don't want to. Okay, if you'd rather just stay in your seat, that's perfectly all right. Okay, we are glad you're here. But if you want to partake of it, you can. Because this is a wonderful thing we get to do where we remember how God so desperately loved us that he was willing to, to die on a cross to save us. And so I encourage you to come up. Now, some of you in this room might be sitting there thinking, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't have this, this whole part about being in the family of God, and I want that to change in my life, then I encourage you to come and please talk to me and Dave. Or if you're sitting there thinking, there are, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm following Jesus, but there is a list of things that keep coming up in my mind day after day after day that tell me that there's no way that God can possibly love me and I need some help. And you're welcome to come and talk to us. Now, I know for you introverts in your room, that might be a little bit scary, so I want you to know you can always come by the office. You can shoot us a text or an email or a phone call. Me and Dave are here every day. Not every day. We're not here on Saturdays, okay? But we're here a lot, okay, so that you know that you are loved by Jesus. And he's got great things in store for you. So let's pray. Father, we come before you now, consenting to your presence among us. What a joy it is to be part of this ceremony, knowing that it symbolizes how, how your body was broken, how your blood was poured out, just so we could have a new life in you. And while we might come up with excuses and, and a list of wrongs in our lives that, that we we sometimes can even believe make us <laughs> despicable to you. Make us just, so Father, this just, it's hard to even amount to announce how good you are when we put up all these excuses to say that, that we're not worth it. And yet you still loved us. So thank you. It's in your name we pray.